From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Air Talk. Good morning. I'm Larry Mantle. We've got some positive developments in the fight against COVID-19, though New York State lost nearly 800 residents to the virus in the past 24 hours. The governor there says this is the apex of cases. We'll talk with our medical experts today about where Southern California likely sits in its arc of infections. And about an hour ago, President Obama endorsed his former VP. How significant will that endorsement be in Joe Biden's efforts to attract the more progressive wing of his party? And we'll hear from listeners who are special education teachers, occupational and speech therapists about adapting to delivering their services online. Good morning, it's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. So good to have you with us today. We'll be talking about the challenge later this hour that special education teachers, as well as therapists who work with special needs students, that they're facing taking all of that therapy and instruction online. We'll hear from listeners who are in that very field what they have to say about adapting their work to meet their students in their homes, not physically, but virtually. But we begin with the very latest on COVID-19, this day where we saw in New York State nearly 800 deaths. We also heard New York Governor Andrew Cuomo say that it appears there uh, that the state is at the apex of the plateau. That's a very good sign when it comes to overall hospital admissions for coronavirus patients. Here in Los Angeles County, yesterday there were 25 confirmed new coronavirus-linked deaths. That brings the county's total number of fatalities to 320. We'll be getting an update early this afternoon. And um, the good news, though, L.A. County reported only 239 new cases of the virus. That's the lowest number since late March. And that's, of course, with expanded testing. L.A. County is touting today that for every person with COVID-19 symptoms, they now have access to coronavirus testing. Joining us to talk about where we are with the latest developments and the arc of the pandemic is Cedar sinai Medical Center Senior Vice President of Medical Affairs and Chief Medical Officer at Cedars, Dr. Richard Riggs. Dr. Riggs, thank you so much. Good to have you with us. Thank you, Larry. Happy to be here. Uh, Let's talk first of all about what, at the same time, we're looking at these devastating fatality rates. Um, The apparent good news about what's happening with the arc uh, of the case curve. Your thoughts on where we sit? Well, it is very good news for California. Uh, Again, we were one of the first states to impose a stay-at-home blanket order, and that seems to have markedly dampened the height of our curve, as well as the depth of the of the uh, folks that are have been affected. And it looks like our curve will also peak over the next three to four days here in California. Um, and that projection is uh, well within line 
for the ability of, of the hospital and um, you know hospital personnel to respond to all those needs within our state. The, the thing I've heard about the um, social distancing measures and all, uh, we've heard about flattening the curve, and that seemed to be more about hospital capacity so that people weren't dying or getting substandard treatment because there weren't beds or there weren't ventilators or there weren't hospital personnel to be able to treat them. Not necessarily that overall, over the full course of COVID-19, um, that that there would be fewer people exposed. And at this point, as you look at hospital capacity, Cedars and at other local hospitals, do you think that's been achieved? Is the capacity there? Yes, absolutely. The capacity is there. And uh, if you look at uh, some of the California statistics, you can see that the resources needed based upon our planning are all beds would be about 2,000, and we have 26,000 available. ICU beds needed uh, about 500, and we have over 2,000 beds uh, available. So that indeed was the objective of understanding how we do the physical and social distancing in order to to slow the rate of infection uh, as we open up the uh, open up our um, sort of social distancing and some of those things loosen, we will see continued activity uh, of COVID in the population that we suspect, um, and we hope that that is uh, indeed controllable for the long term uh, for the ability to f- for folks to get the care that they need. Do you have an approximate census, uh, particularly on ICU beds, on on what percentage are filled at, at Cedars, or have you not had a chance to check that today? No, um, I, we've had we have plenty of capacity at Cedar Sinai for both ICU and non ICU uh, patients, and uh, I think that the you know, tracking the local area hospitals, that is also uh, true of local area hospitals. There's plenty of capacity. And to that end, uh, I do want to point out that uh, we have seen a significant drop in folks uh, following up for what we would normally assume to be emergent um, emergent conditions such as stroke symptoms or chest pain or shortness of breath, those types of things, uh, afraid of, of coming to the emergency departments or seeking the care that they need. Indeed, they should not do that because this will just prolong uh, perhaps a, something that is uh, cause increased morbidity or mortality for that particular patient. So there is plenty of capacity in the system for folks to seek the care that they need. So I would encourage listeners to be able to uh, keep that in mind as they or their family members may develop any symptoms that need, that need care or attention. I think one of the concerns, at least anecdotally, that I'd heard from people who'd gone to an ER for non-COVID-related problems is the wait was so long early on so many people were presenting at emergency rooms that people were sitting there for, you know, eight, ten hours to be seen. Do you know if that has diminished uh, with time? Are we looking at shorter waits generally in our region? Yes, I don't think that there's, uh, because we were uh, prepared both for the um, sort of surge that may happen, and we were anticipating that. I think there was extra capacity and extra triage pieces that were put in place in order to facilitate uh, care of the COVID patients as well as care of the non-COVID patients. And indeed, I think that um, you know many folks are, <clears throat> are understanding that they 
regular patient care needs to continue to occur also. So I don't think the wait times are an issue at this point. We're talking with Cedars-Sinai Medical Center, Senior VP of Medical Affairs and Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Richard Riggs. If you have questions for him about COVID-19, about the public health measures to try and make sure hospitals could handle the capacity of people with COVID symptoms, we're at 866-893-KPECC, 866-893-5722, or the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. So um, one of the trade-offs that we've heard talked about with flattening the curve is that that may mean that COVID-19 is with us somewhat longer um, and and that there is perhaps diminished herd immunity as people have physically distanced. Can you speak to that issue and how much of a trade-off is that? Well, theoretically, uh, that is a, a potential um, uh, sort of uh, fallout of our uh, severe social distancing and physical distancing that's occurred. However, um, that allows us to prepare and understand more about the disease um, as it is progressing. Again, if you think about this uh, virus, it's been around for four and a half, five months, and that's kind of what we know about the um, course of it, as well as the prevalence and also recurrence and resurgence of it. So we're going to learn as we go along. We continue to watch other countries as they open up um, their <clears throat> their social distancing measures and understand what that looks like. Indeed, uh, we are going to need to titrate this as we walk through it. So flexibility is going to be key. Sticking to the facts, sticking to the science is also going to be key as we understand how we as a community continue to um, operate with the coronavirus in the background. Some uh, countries that have been devastated by COVID-19, like Italy, are looking at kind of gingerly reopening a few businesses um, and and adding to the ones that had been considered essential. Um, they're not going, you know, full-throated into reopening, but, but doing it um, gradually. Does that make sense to you that when it's determined um, that we're past the peak, that hospitals can handle the capacity over the next, you know, three or four days, does it make sense to do this gradually here? Well, that's why I think the regional plans that are being developed in the country are actually, uh, you know, very smart in looking at how we can do this over large areas of the country and uh, populations and uh, sort of across in in concert, because that will um, create uh, sort of a general game plan where information and statistics can be tight can be uh, evaluated over time. In other words, if we see, we need to continue to doing the testing. We need to also think about the immunologic testing that's uh, on, that's coming uh, into play and understand what that may mean for us understanding how we interpret those results. So there's still many things that we don't know, but what we can do is continue to look at the testing rate of positives, the symptoms, and then the number of folks that are being hospitalized as surrogates for how well we're doing with the titration of opening up uh, California and the West Coast. We're talking with Cedars-Sinai Medical Center physician, Dr. Richard Riggs. Uh, Renee uh, says, I just read in the Los Angeles Times about the experimental use of Actemra uh, to treat the, the cytokine or cytokine, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce that, storm that sometimes results from COVID-19. It's apparently a drug used uh, to treat rheumatoid arthritis, an autoimmune disorder. Uh, Your thoughts about that? So 
Uh, thank you for that question. Um, there, um, the Infectious Disease uh, Society of um, uh, the of America today just released uh, recommendations on a lot of different um, studies, uh, medications, and studies of drugs, drug combinations that are currently being evaluated. And in all of the seven uh, different areas, they said that there's a knowledge gap, uh, and that clinical trials would be the way that they would recommend that those medications be prescribed. In other words, there is not a silver bullet at this particular point. We do understand that in some folks, the cytokine storm is uh, certainly something that needs to be managed and understanding how we do that in in the uh, cohort population uh, that would respond to that. Again, this may be a series of different uh, types of of, uh, reactions to the virus in the, within the same physiology of a human, meaning that uh, one, one, um, one person could react very differently in, say, the lungs versus their heart versus uh, fluid overload, et cetera. So I think that we're still understanding some of those things. But the recommendations for all of the experimental treatments right now are that we continue with clinical trials to understand uh, the true impact of any of these um, you know, sort of approaches. Although, you know, it's got to be hard if, if you're a physician treating someone who's dealing with, you know, very serious uh, case of COVID-19 um, to try uh, hydroxychloroquine um, as, as a remedy for that. I know the high dosage trial in Brazil was stopped because of the heart problems uh, that appeared with numerous patients that were part of that study. But, um wouldn't it be difficult for doctors to avoid low dosage because of the anecdotal uh, things they've been seeing with the drug? Well, I can't comment on the actual dose impact of that. What I can comment on is that we're very good at managing, with supportive care, the adult respiratory distress syndrome. Um, and that uh, we have knowledge about that and supporting that with or without any of these other uh, medications and drugs. Again, because the virus is so new, we really don't understand uh, the best, uh, you know, sort of the uh, substrate to help with that, to help modify it, as well as to not uh, overwhelm or have any uh, side effects. All right. Linda in Pasadena says, my parents are elderly. I'm worried about taking them to the hospital for anything because I'm worried about them being exposed to COVID-19 when they're at the hospital. And, and I'm sure, uh, Dr. Riggs, that that's a fear that that many people have. What would you say to people who, who just, you know, I'm only going to the hospital if I absolutely have to? Well, what I would say is that uh, we know that it's in the community. <laughs> so the hospital uh, actually ha- you know, is looking at people and screening people and cohorting uh, folks that have symptoms and that have been diagnosed with this, uh, two particular units with special precautions. So, um, and you know, what we're seeing with, uh, w- with regard to our um, experience here is that you know, it's probably safer to be in the hospital where you have uh, um, you know, sort of appropriate hand hygiene and isolation precautions and everyone is in mask at this particular point. So if, if the parents need care, they should seek that care um, either at the hospital or at their physician's office or urgent care, whatever is appropriate, in order to continue to be evaluated. We don't want people suffering because they're fearful of being exposed to this. Now, uh, is the risk absolutely zero? Well, no, it's not, it's not zero for anybody that is having anybody come in out of their house or is leaving the home, but it is negligible if folks take uh, appropriate precautions. 
Todd in Fullerton asks, how do we move back toward normal after this? How are we assured there won't be more outbreaks when going back to normal? Um, and obviously there is no way to uh, to try and get back to normal without there being risks that more people will be infected. So how do you weigh that? How do you manage that risk? Right. So it's, it is correct. We uh, The idea is that we uh, if we have exposure, that it's long and low and slow until we have a vaccine. Uh, ultimately, that would be the end game for understanding how we would uh, manage this particular uh, virus uh, and its, you know, sort of sequelae. So I think that that's why we're going to have to rely on data and we're going to have to look at new infection rates, new hospitalization rates and understand that. I mean, we're, you know, we're planning this is not a like flu season is over and everybody can go back to doing what they need to do because this is a, such a new virus. We expect there to be activity and a lane of work that will continue with the COVID patients over a, a long period of time um, into the fall and winter. That doesn't mean that the, the regular activities of healthcare can't resume in some way, shape, or form once we're past this uh, physical distancing at the, at the initial onset. If we have a vaccine, let's say 18 months from now, which then radically changes life because people feel a degree of protection that they certainly don't have now, um, what are the chances of there being uh, another strain of COVID that would be uh, similarly lethal that would be an offshoot of COVID-19? Well, um, that's a that's a very good question. I'm not a virologist or microbiologist. What I can say is that um, the flu and the flu strains uh, tend to change and um, sort of mutate over time, and that's why the flu vaccine is reconstituted every year in order to understand how to best uh, try to protect against a significant flu illness. Um, I, we don't know yet whether the coronavirus is also going to behave like that. In other words, if we have a vaccine uh, or maybe it's that we need to understand that that may need to have some retooling over time also as the virus uh, perhaps evolves or mutates. I want to thank you, Dr. Riggs. A real pleasure to have you with us again on Air Talk. Thank you so much uh, for sharing your expertise and also uh, giving us the good news about how Southern California hospitals are at this point well prepared for patients who come in. Thank you. Thank you very much, Larry. We appreciate it. Cedar sinai Medical Center, a Senior Vice President of Medical Affairs and Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Richard Riggs. Every day, we bring you a prominent physician and public health expert to talk about what we're learning about COVID-19. Coming up on Air Talk, how much is a human life valued at? Uh, that's something we don't want to think about, that there is a monetary value assigned But of course there is, and everything from life insurance to the kinds of safety precautions that are called for in automobiles to the sorts of payouts that occur after someone is killed in a natural disaster. We'll talk with the author of a new book uh, about that coming up a little bit later. But next on Air Talk, our focus is on the endorsement that Joe Biden had been waiting for. It's official today, and we'll hear it in the words of President Obama in one minute. Just about 90 minutes ago, President Barack Obama officially announced his support for his former vice president. 
He's someone whose own life has taught him how to persevere, how to bounce back when you've been knocked down. When Joe talks with parents who've lost their jobs, we hear the son of a man who once knew the pain of having to tell his children that he'd lost his. When Joe talks about opportunity for our kids, we hear the young father who took the train home each night so he could tuck his children into bed. I'd like to hear your thoughts from an analytical perspective, not necessarily what the endorsement of President Obama means to you as to who you vote for for the presidency, but how helpful do you think the president's endorsement is and his taking to the campaign trail, if we have a traditional campaign trail in this COVID-19 era, uh, to have them standing side by side, Joe Biden and Barack Obama, 866-893-KPEC. 866-893-5722 or the AirTalk page kpecc.org. In the video address by President Obama, he pointed to a variety of situations in which Joe Biden assisted him as VP. Joe helped me manage H1N1 and prevent the Ebola epidemic from becoming the type of pandemic we're seeing now. He helped me restore America's standing and leadership in the world on the other threats of our time, like nuclear proliferation and climate change. Joe has the character and the experience to guide us through one of our darkest times and heal us through a long recovery. President Obama also gave a nod to Bernie Sanders supporters who are going to be critical in turnout to assist Joe Biden in his presidential candidacies and the president uh, talking about Sanders' accomplishments. The energy and enthusiasm he inspired, especially in young people, will be critical in moving America in a direction of progress and hope. Because for the second time in 12 years, we'll have the incredible task of rebuilding our economy. And to meet the moment, the Democratic Party will have to be bold. Again, I'd like to hear from you how significant you think this endorsement is, and by extension, to have former President Obama standing alongside his former vice president out making the case to voters. Will that build Joe Biden's appeal to Latino voters, for example, who've been more lukewarm to his candidacy than African-American voters? What about the progressive wing of the party? 866-893-KPECC or the Talk page, kpecc.org. With me, founding editor at Politico, John Harris, author of The Survivor, Bill Clinton in the White House. John Harris, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, very good to be with you. Well, uh, how significant is this endorsement that was, of course, expected as soon as Bernie Sanders dropped out of the race? Um, but but now that it's here, does it make a significant difference? Oh, I think it does. There's no question that uh, President Obama is the looming figure in the Democratic Party. He is the, um, the one person who's almost universally um, admired, um, irrespective of whether somebody's... Uh, uh, kind of on the left wing uh, of the party or more in the center. Uh, And I also think the endorsement's uh, uh, very important viewed in tandem with yesterday's news that um, uh, Senator Sanders also uh, uh, kind of an inevitable uh, endorsement, but nonetheless important, uh, got behind Joe Biden. It's saying to everybody, look, this thing is resolved. Joe Biden 
is our candidate, uh, and not just for himself, but he represents the whole of the Democratic Party for the argument we're going to carry into the fall against President Trump. It's interesting that in the um, address that Barack Obama did this morning, he talked about how he would be another a different kind of candidate if he was running today. He talked about the need for a public option um, as part of Obamacare and uh, about a more progressive agenda that he indicated he would be pursuing, then saying essentially that's what Joe Biden is doing now. Um, does that make a successful bridge potentially to more progressive Democrats? Well, it's an argument that um, Joe Biden really needs uh, the whole of the Democratic Party uh, to believe in, um, that argument that uh, President Obama was making, uh, uh, which is like, look, don't hold uh, Joe Biden accountable if uh, you wish he was uh, uh, more progressive than you are or you're critical of something he did 10 or 20 or in Biden's case, he's been in public life uh, nearly 50 years. Uh, what I heard President Obama saying is that times change, and as times change, uh, the the leadership priorities of people who are in public life also change. And so he was saying, look, I would be more liberal if I were running today versus 2008, and you can uh, have confidence that uh, uh, that Joe Biden is going to represent your progressive values. Uh, we have John and El Segundo says, I think having uh, Obama on Biden's campaign is really going to help him because of how gifted a speaker Obama is. He can help Biden communicate his ideas and get them across. Yeah, I mean, it, there's even the potential at live events for um, the former president to kind of do cleanup around around concepts that might be a little murky as they're detailed by by Joe Biden. But in in raising that contrast in the oratorical skills between the two, does that hurt Biden? Oh, I don't think so. Any person who's at the top of the ticket uh, is running on his own or her own. Um, the ability of endorsements affects uh, uh, only at the margins. But this is the critical point. The margins are hugely, hugely important in uh, in presidential politics. Secretary Clinton lost in 2016 because she came up short, just a little bit short, uh, in a handful of states, especially Midwestern uh, swing states, that uh, Democrats expected to win. And the difference in those places uh, was uh, often uh, less enthusiastic African-American turnout. And so if at the margins you increase turnout um, uh, among minorities, uh, and, and I would say other uh, uh, segments of the electorate that uh, um, regarded something uh, uh, didn't regard 2016 as something vital being at stake. Uh, if you get that turnout out, that's the difference. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's important uh, that um, African Americans uh, for Biden. It's important that African Americans say, "Look, I, Senator, uh, President Obama trusts this man, and so I'm also willing to get out there for him." And for people on the left, uh, the fact that Senator Sanders gave that endorsement, it's meaningful. Let's talk with Johnny in Mission Viejo. Johnny, your thoughts about the potential assistance President Obama can give Joe Biden? Well, you know, um, the thing is, is Latinos are not a monolithic block, right? So, um, uh, uh, you know, the... You know, Bernie did well with, you know, Latinos, quote, in the in the border states, which really means Mexicans, but 
he wasn't going to do well with Cubans because of the whole socialism issue. And, you know, conversely, I think that uh, the uh, Obama uh, endorsement might help uh, with, uh, you know, conservative Latinos, Cubans, Argentines, et cetera, but will probably may hurt him with Mexicans because I think a lot of them are so angry about deportations. Of course, there. Of course, there was the Dream Act. So, but yeah, I think John, the the issue that you raise is is significant. John Harris, uh, founding editor of Politico, your thoughts about what Johnny says? Well, I think he makes a good point, uh, not just about Latinos, but. Uh, really, with every group, uh, we as journalists often do uh, lump people in these categories as though they uh, uh, they vote in a monolith or as though they're uh, uh, kind of easily directed by uh, uh, by an endorsement or a particularly effective ad. And I think that's not really how I experience voters. Um, uh, they, um, uh, I, I think people take the choice and um, get enthusiastic or not uh, based on very individual factors. And uh, um, anyway, I I think Johnny makes a good point, which is um, um, we should resist speaking and uh, thinking of of different voting blocks as monoliths, even as we understand that putting together a winning coalition does, in fact, mean assembling the historic constituencies of the Democratic Party. Susan in Pasadena says, I'm Latina. I've always been very fond of Obama. I think he's going to help Biden's campaign and make him a stronger candidate by reaching a larger segment of the electorate. We're at 866-893-KPCC, the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. Astrogoth writes on the page, Obama waiting so long to endorse doesn't reflect well on him. Um I guess I wasn't surprised that a former president would wait for the primary process to play out before making an endorsement, because uh, if a former president did it before that time, uh, it could be seen as, as so disruptive to the process. I, but I don't know, John, historically, what have we seen with former presidents, the point at which they endorse? Um, I think you're right that uh, presidents historically have not waited in to um, nomination battles, and uh, Obama was following that precedent. Uh, I think um, certainly there were some Biden supporters who wished he had tipped his hand a little bit earlier and um, more robustly in uh, saying that, uh, uh, you know, Biden's my guy when the nomination contest was still very competitive. Um, But I'm not sure that that really reflected uh, President Obama's thinking. He, I think he made it pretty clear. Look, anyone's got to win this uh, race on their own, and I'm not wading in. He was following historical precedent. We're at 866-893-KPECC, an opportunity for you to share your analysis about the significance of President Obama's endorsement of his former VP, Joe Biden. Uh, With whom does that help him? How much of a difference does it make? Uh, We knew, of course, that that endorsement was going to come once the primary was decided and, and who the nominee was. What would have been very interesting Uh, John, was if Bernie Sanders had been the nominee to see the degree of endorsement Obama would have given because Sanders ran, you know, so distantly from Obama's record. That's right. And I think that endorsement would have um, probably been even more important for Democrats at that time uh, because uh, President Obama would have been in position, uh, assuming he was willing 
to uh, say to lots of Democrats who had misgivings, like, hey, look, uh, we don't have to be together on every single issue. Um, what's important is that we present a unified Democratic coalition um, uh, in the fall and that uh, the values of this Democratic Party are, are very, very different than the ones that President Trump represents. So um, I think there would have been a lot more drama around the uh, eventual endorsement if it had been uh, Senator Sanders as the nominee. If the campaigns are not able to get out on the road because of social distancing, um, it would seem that that would, to some degree, blunt Obama's effectiveness with Biden. Do you agree? Um, I do, um, in that um, uh, a lot of times what matters is the closing weeks of a campaign um, uh, creating a sense of excitement and driving that turnout. So somebody like President Obama could be a very effective surrogate in key states um, and in key parts of key states. Um, so if we're still living in this uh, strange world uh, come the fall, um, uh, that'll blunt the impact. Of course, it goes both ways. Uh, President Trump, of course, is somebody who is uh, – really energized by and uses as a very, uh, uh, for him, very effective vehicle, his rallies. And if he's not able to do that, that that's a big uh, impediment for him also. All right. John, uh, thank you so much. I appreciate it. John Harris, founding editor at Politico. Thank you so much for joining us. Coming up in our next segment, we're going to talk about special education and the delivery of services and uh, teaching to uh, children with special needs. How is that going remotely? You know, my wife is a speech pathologist. Uh, she works with students at a public school in Glendale. And so I, I kind of getting a uh, front row seat to this whole process, which is very, very challenging. I'd like to hear from you. If you're a special education teacher or an administrator who oversees special education delivery, if you're an occupational therapist, speech pathologist, or work with students who have special needs, join us with how you're making this transition to working with your students while they're at home. 866-893-KPCC. That's 866-893-5722. Back in 90 seconds on AirTalk. You're a parent of a student with special needs and you're working with uh, the providers of services to your child. I'd like to hear how that's going, what sorts of contact you've had with uh, the school and with the education professionals who were part of that team. We're at 866-893-KPCC. Also asking those who are special education teachers, a speech pathologist, occupational therapists, and others who work with students with special needs. Um, and I know there are many other categories as well. I welcome your involvement, how you're navigating having uh, your life changed by working at home and your students being at home as you're providing services. 866-893-KPCC. 
or the Air Talk page, kpecc.org. As I mentioned, I see this up up close with my wife, who's a speech pathologist, and and you know, people say, "Wow, you sure love your work," and I do. Um, I think my wife loves her work <laughs> about as much as I do, and loves the students with whom she works, most of whom are on the autism spectrum, and loves the team she works with and the school and all. But this has been a real roller coaster, and I'm sure she's not alone. That one day it's like, okay, we're, you know, we're ready to roll and things. And then the next day, oh, we've got another directive, which upends this. And now we need that. And it's very, very difficult times for those who are delivering services uh, to young students uh, who are special needs. Joining me from uh, EdSource, the educational publication, senior reporter Carolyn Jones, who covers special education. Carolyn, so good to have you with us. Nice to be here. So uh, what are you hearing from uh, all the people within your reader network about the challenges of converting this education and services to the home? Well, just like you were saying, I think it's a really challenging and scary for some people time, Um, not just for parents, but for teachers, too. Everyone's trying to sort of navigate this new world order and uh, it's it's not been smooth sailing in some places. In some places, it's actually going pretty well. So it's been a real mixed bag across California. And uh, also, when it comes to the technology that's being used, you know, there are concerns about Zoom bombing, concerns if you have kids that are in group settings about the privacy issues that are raised by that. How are different uh, districts and states dealing with some of these new concerns um, that relate to technology? Well, yeah, that's a really good question. And also just the question of getting the the technology to the families is a big deal, making sure every family has um, Wi-Fi hotspots as well as Chromebooks and that they know how to use them and they're getting the right tech support. And then also the right, you know, the teachers are using the right platforms, either Zoom or there's, you know, there's a bunch of them out there, Google Hangouts. And some schools are opting for one platform and other schools are opting for a different platform and just sort of making sure that people know how it all works and the security settings are working and the privacy. So, yeah, it's been it's been really tough, tough times, especially for those in special ed. Also joining us from the University of Southern California, Professor of Clinical Education, Margot Pensaval. She was a special special education teacher for 16 years and now designs special education curricula for USC's Rossier School of Education. Professor Pensaval, thank you for being with us. Uh, what are the range of challenges that you're seeing? Hi, Larry. Um, you know, I've been talking to a lot of teachers and principals locally, and yes, it is a very challenging time and probably even more challenging for students with special needs. But I think, I think we have to remember a couple things that a lot of the students with special needs work and learn in general education classrooms so they can be included in the kinds of formats that um, all kids in the classroom are being included in. Um, a lot of the formats provide for smaller group learning, for one-on-one learning. And I think teachers, it, it has been my impression that teachers are really committed to reaching out to the kids who need a little bit extra support here and there. Now, there's a wide range. I, I think that's the challenge of special education. There's such a wide range of needs. So you mentioned that your wife works with students who are on the autism spectrum. Well, even on the spectrum, we have a wide range of needs. And, and I think that 
teachers are really committed to reaching out to students in that whole range. And we have individual education plans. And, and I think that those right now are our guides. And the teachers are trying to work with those the best they can. As mentioning, uh, my wife did a, uh, a Zoom assessment of one of the students on her caseload and came out. She's just exhausted because trying to deal with all that's new for her as other people who are doing this and uh, working with the parent to try and, and make sure the environment at home is right to do something like that. Um, all of this, very, very challenging for everybody. And I... For the parents who are dealing with this, um, you know, and their special needs child may not be the only child and trying to, you know, work at the same time, going through the economic challenges of this. For parents, it is an extraordinarily challenging time. And if that's you, I'd like to hear from you. 866-893-KPCC. Phoebe in Garden Grove. I understand you're a speech pathologist. So what have you encountered in trying to do your therapy online? Yes. Uh, since switching to distance learning, I think one of the challenging things is the issue of equity, making sure that all special education students have access to our remote learning tools. And then one of the challenges I've been facing as a speech pathologist is, are we being culturally and linguistically sensitive? Um, some families don't have Internet access, don't have the technology and on top of that, the parents might be bilingual and not be as familiar accessing technology like Zoom or Google Classrooms that we are now utilizing. So that's been a bit of a challenge. In um, yeah, and how do you how do you do that? If do you actually help them navigate getting the free uh, internet access that's being provided by some of the companies? Or I think. Switching to distance learning, a lot of my um, time in the day now, a big portion of it has almost been a bit of that IT portion, uh, making sure parents have access and are able to log on, whether that means talking to them on the phone and walking them through it, um, uh, things like that, just to help them have that access. And does your district provide um, Chromebooks or anything for students who don't have access to the hardware? Uh, yes, we kind of um, did a poll with the parents and the students, and those who didn't have it, uh, we were able to lend them Chromebooks. Okay, very good. So then it's a matter of just getting them the broadband access to to be able to, to do this. Have you been able to deliver uh, distance therapy so far, Phoebe? Uh, yes, I've um, started to, you know, post assignments and activities and lessons online, as well as meet with students and push in with the entire class. Um, on online uh, platforms. Very good. Phoebe, thank you so much. Speech pathologist in Garden Grove joining us on AirTalk. We're at 866-893-KPCC or the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. I'd like to hear from you if you are someone who works with students with special needs, a special education teacher, uh, maybe you're a general classroom instructor who has a significant number of students with special needs. How are you working with them, uh, with the parents? in the households that are involved, if you're an occupational therapist, speech pathologist, or, or other provider of special services, 866-893-KPCC, the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. You can tweet at AirTalk or post 
on the AirTalk Facebook page. Just uh, send us a message there. We'll continue our conversation with USC professor Margot Pensaval, who's professor of clinical education and herself a special education teacher for 16 years. And from EdSource, the education publication, Carolyn Jones, senior reporter who's been writing extensively about the challenges of providing special education in the era of COVID-19. We'll be back in one minute. Coming up next hour on AirTalk, we're going to talk with listeners who have businesses that are closed or significantly downsized because of COVID-19 restrictions to ask you what it'll take to get your business back up and running and what changes there might be in its operations. If your employees are working from home, are you going to consider having many of them continue to do that? Might you need a smaller office going forward? How has this process changed the way you're likely to work going forward and operate your business? And what are the things that you're going to need to reestablish either the product or the service uh, that you offer? That's coming up next hour on AirTalk. Right now, we're talking with families who have special need kids. What's going on with the school where your child attends? What sorts of services are you getting? What are the obstacles in obtaining those? If you are a provider of special education services, a teacher, uh, a therapist, um, a clinician, I'd like to hear from you how you're doing that. 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Carolyn Jones, senior reporter at EdSource. You know, one of the issues for schools, of course, is funding what's reimbursable, and in some cases, uh, at least as I understand through my wife, um, therapy itself is the service that actually is quantifiable, billable. Providing support materials doesn't necessarily fall under the same sort of, of thing. And so I wonder for school districts that obviously are also concerned about funding, how they deal with this. Well, that's a great question. Um, I, I think also school districts are very concerned about getting sued um, over under the special ed laws because everything is so inconsistent and up in the air right now. So they're worried about paying for this, but then also lawsuits further down the road. And that's something that's going up to the federal level right now with uh, Betsy DeVos scheduled to make some kind of recommendations in the next week or two about you know granting some kind of temporary waivers to the special ed laws to make things a little bit easier for school districts. But on the other hand, that's kind of enraged some disability rights activists and parents on the other side. Yeah. And and so, Carolyn, under the current law, is it that special education services need to be provided commensurate to what's going on with the typical general education uh, provided uh, distance-wise? Yes, exactly. Um, Under the federal special ed law, which dates from 1973, all students are entitled to, you know, free, high quality public education that's appropriate to their abilities. So for kids in special ed, that could mean, you know, very individualized instruction. So and right now, that's really hard to deliver. School districts are trying really hard. And I know individual teachers are just being heroic and trying to make sure that this happens. But it's it's tough. 
it's tough times right now. So school districts are a little bit leery about what happens next. So that's why they're asking uh, for a little bit of relief from the federal government. Yeah, Margot Bensaval, University of Southern California. What what sort of realistically should parents expect during this time when they're having such a challenge um, providing what their special needs child needs while at home? Yeah, uh, I, I was listening to Carolyn, and and I think all the policy issues and the funding issues and all that are are really up in the air right now, and it provides a lot of insecurity for parents. I think on the same point, the parents I've spoken to are really optimistic. Yes, they're scared. Yes, they're challenged. But the teachers are reaching out. And and I think that at USC, one of the things we always teach is make sure your parents are on your team. And this is particularly true with kids with special needs. Um, It's a team approach. And I think that there, there could be, you know, a, a renewed kind of connection that comes out of this. I know this may sound a little Pollyanna, but when the parents are working with the teachers and the teachers are reaching out to the families, I, I think there is the opportunity here to to serve the kids in probably not the same way. I mean, we have to remember, this has been going on for a short time. Two of those weeks in LAUSD were spring break. So they're just coming back to school. And I think this is the time where things are going to start to gel. And and I'm optimistic that, that things will start to work out. I mean, you know, special education in and of itself is a challenge. So I think working it out remotely is just going to give us one more layer to to resolve. Gayani, a listener in Compton, says, I have a special needs child, uh, and I'd like to have them receive occupational therapy, speech therapy services. The school's offered some resources, but I need to know how to be able to get more of this for my child. Uh, Professor Pensival, do you have any advice for her on that? Well, I think that obtaining services is probably are going to it's going to go through the same, you know, route. You're going to have to go to your district, you're going to have to get those services approved and occupational therapist um as opposed to physical therapy, I think can be done remotely. Um, again, the services are going to have to be approved, the funding needs to be approved, and that will come through the district. And it's probably going to take a little tenacity right now. So I, I would just advise her to find somebody to connect with in her district and just keep, you know, figuring out how to get those services for her child. And individual educational uh, plans, IEPs, those are still expected to be done, right, even with the additional challenge of doing that from a distance. So far, um, that may be one of the things that Secretary DeVos might be commenting on. But right now, individual uh, education plans are in order. Um, They are ongoing, and students should be requiring those services, yes. And for many special needs students, summer is a key point, as it can be for all students. But your thoughts about um, is it important for the district to continue offering the services as they typically would in the summer, Professor? Oh, that's a really good question. You know, generally the districts run pretty robust special education programs during the summer, depending, again, on what the needs of the students are and what their IEPs say. 
I mean, it may be. I, I read in the New York Times that everything was going to be pushed back into the summer and early start in the fall. We, and, and that was the New York public school system. We don't know what's going to happen. And again, I think that we're just trying to work out a network in place. But I think given the need for consistency amongst many children with special needs, those kinds of programs in the summer would certainly serve them well. And Carolyn Jones of EdSource, what is the process for the Department of Education, the the Federal Department of Education, to potentially relax the special education mandate? Well, Betsy DeVos will make some recommendations or perhaps no recommendations to Congress um, at the end of the month. That was part of the CARES Act that passed in late March. And then Congress will decide, you know, to accept or reject her recommendations. And and then it'll might get wrapped into the next uh, coronavirus aid bill that comes after that. And then so goes that's the to process. The, and then goes to the president for his signature? Correct. All right. Carolyn Jones, senior reporter at EdSource, the online education-based publication. She covers special ed for EdSource. And Margot Pensaval, University of Southern California professor of clinical education and for many years a special education teacher herself before moving into higher ed. And she designs curricula for students with differences corridor of USC's Masters of Arts in Teaching program. Thank you both for being with us. Coming up in our next hour on Air Talk, if you've got a business, you're thinking about what it's going to take to reopen it and whether your work environment might change, maybe more people working remotely, I invite you to call 866-893-KPCC. Please tell us all about it. Good morning. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. I so appreciate your being with us. Hope your day is doing well. Wonderful to have a sunny day in most parts of Southern California. I was driving to work and so nice to see the clouds lifted. Well, and the figurative cloud over the economy will hopefully be lifting sometime in the not too distant future. Governor Gavin Newsom, with that in mind, coming up at noon today in his daily news conference, you'll hear live on KPCC, says he's going to talk about the criteria for starting to reopen the economy in California, starting to allow more people to return to work, talk about what's uh, apt to happen as uh, public health experts believe that we are approaching the peak of the number of coronavirus cases here in California. So once we're on the downside of that curve, the question is, what is it going to to take for some businesses to start coming back? Perhaps gradually, some might be able to try and reopen all at once. But if you have a business, I'd like to hear from you. What has to happen for you to open up your doors again, for you to reconstitute your staff, for you to have operating capital or inventory that you need, I'd like to hear from you what it's going to take. This gives us a snapshot of the kinds of challenges that different types of businesses are going to be happening whenever this happens, whenever the governor says or the president says, 
yes, we can start gradually reopening businesses. 866-893-KPECC, 866-893-5722. We know Dr. Anthony Fauci has said we're not there yet on reopening. May 1st is overly optimistic, he says, to do that. And again, it's highly unlikely we're going to look at anything that's all at once. Social distancing is probably still going to be mandated. And uh, there are going to be certain limitations on larger gatherings and the like. So what happens in your business, whether you've got a restaurant, whether you manufacture something, whether you provide some sort of a service that people just aren't pursuing at this point, either because of financial constraints or because the service involves public gatherings? 866-893-KPECC. What will it take for you to get your business back operating in some way, shape, or form, or if it's severely constrained, to get you at least closer toward what the typical flow of business would be. 866-893-KPECC or the Air Talk page, kpecc.org. Uh, RTB wonders about how many people can come into the counter area to maintain distancing and having everyone wear a mask. There are a lot of businesses closed that could be operating safely with no problem, yet they're considered non-essential. Well, they're essential to the owner and employees who have to pay the bills. The compromised need to stay at home longer while the rest need to get back to work. And that undoubtedly is going to be a part of this, too. People that are older or have underlying physical conditions which make COVID-19 of greater risk to their health that would put them at a greater risk of dying from the coronavirus, obviously it's going to be different for them uh, than individuals who are healthier and are younger. 866 893-KPCC. Now, in parts of Asia, for example, they're looking at reopening restaurants but doing greater spacing, as some restaurants tried to do before they were ordered closed um, as a part of, of the public health effort. So if you have a restaurant, I'd be interested in just the economics of what if you reopened your dining room but you had half the number of tables that you typically do? Can that pencil out for you if you reopened under those circumstances with a smaller staff? Would you be able to make it profitable or would the numbers simply not be there with half the total tables in your restaurant? 866-893-KPCC. Todd in Los Feliz, what's your business? Uh, I have a tail waggers and tail washers. It's a pet store and a pet grooming salon. Very good. And uh, have you stayed open at all? We we had left our retail store open on a much smaller scale, mostly doing curbside pickup and free same home day delivery. Um, our grooming salon, once the mayor made that an essential business, we opened on a very small scale with uh, appointments only. Um, and so just very few people. All right. And for you to, to you know, get back more to a retail environment uh, with your pet store, are, are you ready to go once the order comes down? And would your employees be up for that? I believe so. I mean, I think with uh, the idea is, you know, that if we're still operating even on a very small scale and even though we're not really paying the bills right now, 
the lease were were like the analogy that was sent uh, was told to me was like putting your computer on standby instead of powering it down. So we're kind of like in standby mode, and then once everything's good, we're we're ready to go. You know, to go back in full operation, and that's that's what I'm hoping for that we're not completely rehiring everybody. You know, we're we're kind of gradually bringing people on and finding other things for them to do. You know, we've had groomers are now delivery guys, you know, or delivery people. And, and so we're kind of keeping our staff as much as we can. Very good. Todd, what with, with you doing more limited grooming by appointment and delivery and all, wh- what percentage of a hit would you say you've taken on your business? Um, on our grooming, we're probably down 80%. Um, we're only like at maybe 20%. Our retail, we're down um, uh, at least 60-some percent. But uh, in that 60%, a lot of that is the the, the delivery, the you know, home yeah. delivery, which I myself am doing most of, you know, a lot of that myself. And, um, you know, just to keep this. Sure. I'm so grateful for that people are using that. Yeah, yeah, that people are being loyal and still ordering from you. Todd, we wish you the very best with your business. Thank you for joining us from Los Feliz. I'd like to hear from other business operators or employees, managers. What would it take to get your business back closer to normal? Doesn't have to be full up, but uh, to open the doors if it's a brick-and-mortar retail establishment or if it's a... uh, you know, non-brick and mortar, what is it going to take for you to reconstitute your business? Laura, in Palm Springs, you're on AirTalk. What kind of uh, work do you do? What kind of business do you have? I'm an optician, and I work for an optical shop. And being as how we have to work so closely face-to-face with patients taking measurements, they completely stopped doing any of that. At that point, we're just, at this point, we're just giving out glasses and taking orders for contacts. But I feel like if we were able to be open by appointment only, if they already have a valid prescription, we should be able to see them. We do have masks. We do have gloves. And even if they did it and called ahead of time and said, hey, I have my own prescription. I'd like to purchase a pair of glasses. That would at least have some revenue coming in. Yeah. Um, now you're in you're in Palm Springs and there are a lot of older residents in the Coachella Valley. Do you think they would be comfortable if you were to open up your doors in two to three weeks? Um, all the staff wore masks and gloves. Um, those coming into the uh, opticians were asked to, you know, wear masks. Do you think the people would would come back? Honestly, we are getting calls every day. When are you opening? I need to get my eyes tested. Okay. And because our doctor is older, he's not comfortable seeing patients, and I'm okay with that. Like, I understand that. We sure. Our limits. But I do believe that here in Palm Springs, we are being super careful, and our older patients are being really careful because we are an older community. People are not just out and about walking and doing. Like, 
it's not the same that it was before. I understand. Laura, we wish your business all the best, and hopefully uh, the doors will be able to open sometime soon. Let's talk next with Jenny in Studio City. I understand you have an acting school, Jenny. That's right. And my main problem is is that my rent is so exorbitant that if I don't have classes filled, um, you know, we thought, well, we'll do social distancing and we'll take temperatures before people come in. But that that would really limit the number of students that we can have. And I can't cover my rent that way. And I'm having a real hard time getting the PPP uh, grant questions answered. So I'm a little. Yeah. Yeah. You're in a tough spot, too, because as you know, people are are. Um, performing at your acting school, they they probably aren't going to be able to have their mouths covered in any way because of the need for facial expressions and the voice to be fully there. So I see how, Jenny, this would be really, I mean, you're looking probably at one of the later businesses to be able to open. Probably. We're, we're moving a lot of stuff online, but in the meantime, I'm still having to pay my rent. Yeah. Um, for a location that, you know, <laughs> and I'm not even making that. I'm, right now, I'm not even making that rent. Yeah. I, I, Jenny, we wish you all the best. So sorry to hear about this. And hopefully the Paycheck Protection Program money will, will come in and and uh, that your landlord you can work something out with and, and that the school can come back. Jenny in Studio City, 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Doug in Santa Monica says you can open your business, but who's going to come? Uh, while the virus is out there, no one is going to want to leave their homes. I don't know. People leave to go to the supermarket, for example. Would people go if they wore a mask and their hairstylist wore a mask to go in and get a haircut? I think that there are people that would do that, but I'd be interested to hear what other listeners think. 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Shana in Long Beach, I understand you've got a skate shop in Long Beach? Yes, I have a roller skate shop, and while we are entirely closed, oddly, the the demand for roller skates has increased exponentially since the pandemic started. So we can't really serve our customers um, in the way that we want to. We had to try, we had to move online where you cannot try on skates, where we have to communicate through email. It's been a really big challenge. Yeah. And so for you to get the shop up and running again, your brick and mortar shop in Long Beach, are you ready to go as soon as you got the okay to do it? The employees available, everything ready to open when that happens? Actually, we don't. Our roller skates, the the roller skates that we sell are mostly made in the USA and production has halted. So we have basically sold all of our stock in store online already and now we have no more roller skates because production on the skates have stopped so once we open again our store is going to be empty and it's kind of um we're kind of trying to figure out what we're even going to do what we're going to be opening up to without having any stocks to sell yeah and do you do you have the capital to restock the store before you get revenue coming in um, yeah, I, I I saved quite a bit of money, so um, Very good. we aren't going to be uh, totally out of revenue to to invest back in. It's just there's nothing to even 
buy to put in our store right now. Shana, we wish you the best with your skate shop. What's the name of your shop? Planet Roller Skate. Planet Roller Skates. Okay, we hope you're able to get restocked and reopened uh, when it's safe to do so. Uh, Silas writes on the AirTalk page, Larry, people have to go to the supermarket. I agree with the caller, Doug. Doesn't think that people are going to go out to businesses. You know, I, 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 I guess I think it's going to be gradual. And um, it's all going to depend, too, on the number of cases that are out there, how significant the risk is that people you know, feel there is uh, that they're going to be exposed to COVID-19. Gary in Carson, you're on AirTalk. Uh, Gary, you have uh, an events business. You have rental supplies you provide. Uh, I, I would think it's going to be tough for, for you to get back. Yeah, the uh, event business is, I think, about a $60 billion business around the United States, party rental companies. Uh, you know, we do, we, uh, we have a linen business. Uh, we provide linens and napkins for weddings, special occasions, corporate events. Uh, events at universities like UCLA, SC, you know, and so on and so forth. And when, of course, the uh, coronavirus came in, everything shut down to zero. I mean, there were zero events. So now the question will be, when would people feel comfortable to get together with more than 10 people or 50 people or 100 people or 200 people? As far as our business with universities for now, the end of the year, that's gone because obviously sure. they're going to be all shut down. So that was a large part of our business. Yeah, and uh, do you think it's going to take as long as the development of a vaccine for large events to be held again? Well, the question is, you know, how large is an event? I mean, if you have a corporate event with 500 people, are they going to feel comfortable going? And then you can say the same thing about sports events. Are people going to be feeling okay to go to a 90,000-person event at a stadium and have the possibility of, you know, the coronavirus and so on? But I'm just looking at smaller events up to 1,000, 1,200, you know, most of them are like 200, 250. But are people going to feel comfortable going there? And then there are companies like uh, Town & Country in the Valley, um, Bright, which is one of the largest um, uh, companies in terms of party rentals. I mean, they're eventually, you know, shut down, and they have tens of millions of dollars of inventory. Yeah. Millions of dollars of inventory. They have tens of millions of dollars of inventory. I know town and country has like 600 people working for them. I understand they're totally shut down. And so the question would be, who's going to feel comfortable, you know, running tables? Sure, sure. No, Gary, it's 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 a huge question because you're you're right there in in the area that's perceived to be the greatest risk. Uh, Similarly, Destiny in Koreatown says, I have a 6,000-square-foot production studio that people rent out. We were uh, one of the first to shut down. My business is completely on hold, and it seems like it's going to be one of the last to reopen. I have to figure out if I need to readjust to something else for the space. That's Destiny in Koreatown with a 6,000-square-foot, wow, large production production studio. We wish you the best too, Destiny. It's Air Talk on 89.3 KPCC. We'll, of course, revisit this topic in the future. The question is, you know, for your particular business, when do you feel like you'll be able to at least gradually reopen? What will it take to do that? Do you have the capital to do it? And how do you convince people that it's safe enough to patronize. We'll revisit this in the weeks to come. This all is Governor Gavin Newsom at noon. 
is expected to announce what the criteria will be for a gradual reopening of businesses here in California. We'll bring that to you live at noon on 89.3. I'll be back in just one minute on Air Talk. It's Air Talk on 89.3 KPCC. A little bit later this hour, we'll talk about the huge challenge of opening large venues, whether you're talking about sports arenas or stadiums, Disneyland. What about Las Vegas and the Strip? At what point does that happen and what has to happen for the larger venues to be able to do that? Kind of an extension of what we were just talking about with owners of small businesses. But we're joined now by data scientist, health economist, and adjunct associate professor at Columbia University, Howard Stephen Friedman. His new book is Ultimate Price, The Value That We Place on Life. We do, of course, place a value on life as much as we might not like to think about it, whether it's the extent of safety precautions that we use in automobiles, whether it has to do with compensation provided out of a victim's fund for 9-11 or or some other uh, mass event like that, to how is that value determined? Thank you so much, Howard, for joining us today on AirTalk. We appreciate it. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's talk, first of all, about COVID-19, because that, of course, is where public officials are trying to weigh risk on one hand and potential lives lost to the virus versus the harms done by people becoming unemployed and the economy being largely shut down. In a case like that, it's a very difficult thing, you know, to to weigh those against each other. But, of course, that's what that's what officials are grappling with right now. Do we have any sorts of formulas of the past that could be applied to that? Well, interestingly, this is exactly what regulators and our regulatory agencies do regularly. They perform cost benefit analysis, whether it's the EPA or the FDA or other groups. So. They have a lot of practice with this, and there are pretty standard methods. What makes it very challenging this time around is that the assumptions are so uh, vague and the models aren't as clearly defined. But there's a methodology that's very well established. And and can you walk us through that, obviously not with the fine detail that, that regulators actually use, but in a general sense? Well, sure. Well, let's take an environmental example. So let's say they're looking to see if there should be a new regulation changing how much arsenic is allowed in the water. They might look to see what are the costs associated with improving the water safety from the point of view of companies, and then what are the benefits in terms of improved health and less deaths. Those less deaths get monetized. They put a dollar figure on those human lives, and they look to see does it make sense from a cost-benefit point of view, when they add up the dollars for the costs and the the dollars for the benefits. And how do they monetize uh, a life? Is it the earning capacity of of the individual? Is that how they come up with the monetary value? Great question. Well, they now use something called the value of a statistical life, currently at around $10 million, where they put the same value for everyone. Rich or poor, young or old, black or white, whatever 
person they're reflecting and group that they're reflecting has the same value. But if you go back decades ago, they actually did something similar to what you described. They looked at earnings. So right now we have a much bigger number and one that's equal for everyone. Okay. And do you think that that is is the morally correct way to do it? Or do you think that since you're talking about monetary value, that is what it is, that using a person's income capacity uh, over the course of the life is is uh, a more precise way of doing it? Well, there's no perfect way. And two smart people can make great arguments. Personally, I think it's better to start by valuing all lives equally. And then if you have to make adjustments, make adjustments. For example, it is problematic to equate the murderer with the Nobel Peace Prize winner. So all lives equal has some problems, but if you just derive it based on income, you have huge issues of inequality. You have gender inequalities, you have race-based inequalities, location-based inequalities, and you bias against valuing the lives of people who choose either not to work, to be caregivers, or choose professions that don't earn as much. So driving it off of income, I think, has far more issues than valuing all lives the same and perhaps having to make a few adjustments. Although you could probably make the argument that valuing according to income is consistent with sort of the societal ills that are the um, that are the entry point that are the input to that. So the question would be: as you're advocating, is the compensation an effort to provide redress to a societal ill of inequality, or is it since it's a societal process, should it be consistent with how society has valued individuals? Well, you make a very interesting point there. And so when you look at it from the point of view of the government, they're thinking about society's costs and society's benefits. And so valuing equally feels more appropriate. But when you talk about, for example, a company, when they do their own calculations, for example, of should I make the car safer? Or on the other hand, will I just pay more in lawsuits and regulatory fines later? They do think about who are the victims, how much are they going to pay per victim. And that choice really comes into play because in that case, when you're looking at, for example, civil court judgments, incomes do play a role. We're talking with Howard Stephen Friedman, data scientist, health economist, and adjunct associate professor at Columbia University. He's author of the new book, Ultimate Price, The Value We Place on Life. If you have questions for him, we're at 866-893-KPECC, 866-893-5722. You can also comment on the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. You can tweet at AirTalk or post on the AirTalk Facebook book page. Um, Howard, you know, we have these these just terrible um, examples of public malfeasance, the Flint um, water contamination being an example. We have environmental degradation affecting impoverished communities all across the country. And um, is, is part of the problem there that there is a formal evaluation that's done, which simply doesn't value um, poorer people as highly? Or are these examples where there's no consideration given to the lives that are put at risk? Well, for a government calculation, 
there's no question they assume all lives are valued equally. But to your point, a private company may look into the fact that perhaps the settlements are going to be lower if it's poor people put at risk versus wealthier. And that's a big problem because it points to the fact that lives that are less valued are less protected and lives that are more valued are more protected. Something that we see throughout the world, whether it's a question of the civil courts and justice, whether it's for-profit companies doing their analysis or any other system. Does it have to be done? I mean, is this as sort of nasty as this process is? Is is it something that you have to do at some level to come up with any sort of, of what your safety standards are, what your environmental standards are? Is this unavoidable? I wouldn't say unavoidable. The United States lived without doing cost-benefit analysis for many, many years. But there are some values in doing it. And for example, you want to at least be able to determine if you're doing something that's efficient, right? You can see if if it costs me $100 to do a particular intervention and it has the same effect as an intervention that costs only $1, I'd like to know that I'm going to use the $1 and save money. So it's not simply a question of balancing human lives and dollars, but it is also about the fact that every government and even every company has a limited amount of resources. They have to spend it wisely. So it can lead to actually saving more lives if you spend your money wisely. So there is actually a real positive that comes from applying it. Well, well, and, you know, to put an extreme face on this, I mean, if if we put the ultimate value of protecting human life, we'd never let anybody go anywhere. And we'd all be told, you know, for the rest of our lives, except, you know, walking around your neighborhood, stay home. People wouldn't be allowed to drive cars. There'd be no trucks on there. You know, if we took uh, a ridiculous example of the extreme protection of life, but we accept a certain degree of risk. We allow people to drive uh, high speed on Internet. We come up with safety standards to try and mitigate risk. But none of us accept a zero risk world. So how how sort of using this putting a value on life, do we come up with effective um, cost benefit on safety standards? So you brought up a beautiful example with cars. You're absolutely right. If we just simply fixed it so that all cars could never drive more than 20 miles an hour, we would vastly reduce the number of automobile fatalities, but people would choose not to accept it. They would say, this simply violates my choices. So there is a balance that goes on there. I think at its core, though, there's there's truly a benefit here. And it's back to this idea that if you have a limited pool of money, which we all do, you'd like to be able to save the most lives while spending the least amount of money. Whether you're talking about a healthcare system or a regulatory system, that's still the goal. So there really is a positive uh, idea behind it. Yeah, I guess the point I'm making is that you can go so far in an effort to save lives that you make an impediment on people's lives that's so great, the quality of life is so diminished, or economic benefits are so diminished, that people just won't accept that trade-off. They won't accept the effort to get to zero loss of life. 
And I, I fully agree with it. That, that's my example of I think people would reject it if you simply adjusted it so every car cannot go above 20 miles an hour. People would reject that. So there is a balance, and economics is tied to happiness. It's not simply about GDP and dollars and cents. It's explicitly linked to people's happiness and, and the desire of trying to maximize happiness. We're talking with Columbia University adjunct associate professor Howard Stephen Friedman. He's author of Ultimate Price, The Value We Place on Life. Again, you can ask questions on the AirTalk page. Uh, you can also ask uh, on uh, Facebook or by tweeting at AirTalk. The 9-11 uh, Victims Fund, when that was established, how did that put a value on the people that died in that attack? So that was government money, and there was a rule associated with it. It specifically said that economic value must be considered. Kenneth Feinberg, who was running that program, ended up creating a formula. The lowest amount that he provided to families of those who died was $250,000, and the highest was over $7 million. The main difference between those who earned or who were paid $250,000 and those paid over $7 million was the income of the victim. But he did try to cap that. He did say, no matter what you earned, I'm not going to pay more than this amount. Interestingly, after that was over, he later said a couple of years uh, past it that he would have preferred to have not had to consider economics and pay everyone the same amount. He said it would have been simpler to administer and it would have been more acceptable to the public because the public generally didn't care for the fact that some lives were being valued at 30 times more than the lives of other people. Yeah, so they didn't see it as as that the income potential was being valued. Members of the public saw this, that the life itself was being valued higher. Exactly, because when people accepted the compensation, they also waived their right to sue. So they literally viewed it as a price tag on human life and thought it was unfair that it was such a high ratio. Of course, here in the United States, we have much, much higher ratios of income. If you earn minimum wage, you'll get about $15,000 a year, while we have CEOs of companies who can earn hundreds of millions of dollars a year. And Howard, was that was the 9-11... Um... Uh, compensation, was that congressionally determined? So that there was, um, it was passed by Congress, and it did have restrictions on it. So yes, uh, but the actual formula was created by Kenneth Feinberg, who later led many other compensation funds. And after the Boston Marathon bombing, there was a fund created with private money. In that one, he paid the families of those who died the same amount. He literally followed up on exactly what he said he thought would have been the better approach. Howard, thank you for being with us. We appreciate your talking about your new book, Ultimate Price. Good to have you with us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Howard Stephen Friedman, uh, Columbia University adjunct professor, data scientist, and health economist. It's Air Talk on 89.3 KPCC. Coming up in less than half an hour, Governor Gavin Newsom is expected to lay out his criteria for a gradual reopening of California's economy beyond what are currently deemed uh, essential businesses. We're going to be talking about 
On large venues coming up next, what that might look like, whether it's Disneyland, whether it's hotels along the Las Vegas Strip, major sporting events. We talked earlier this hour what it would take for business owners to get their business up and running again. How far are we away, though, from large-scale events, particularly before there's any vaccine? We'll talk about that in just 90 seconds on Air Talk. In about 20 minutes, Governor Gavin Newsom with his daily news conference, at which today he's expected to outline his criteria for reopening gradually California's economy beyond the currently open businesses deemed essential. Earlier this hour, we talked about what it would take for business owners to get their businesses back up and running if they're uh, currently sidelined. But uh, what about what would be the most challenging? Large gatherings, places like amusement parks, theme parks, uh, stadiums, arenas, uh, getting the Las Vegas Strip up and running again. When you've got thousands and thousands of jobs that rely on large crowds coming together. Joining us to talk about it is Hal Kempfer, CEO of Global Risk Intelligence and Planning, known as GRIP, a management consulting firm based in Long Beach. Hal's a former Marine intelligence officer and has been a guest with us many times on AirTalk. Hal, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Larry. Good to be with you. Uh, I saw the interview that you gave uh, to the TV station in Las Vegas, where, of course, they're very anxiously uh, awaiting when the Strip can reopen. And um, in your view, what is it going to take for businesses that rely on these large numbers of people to gather? Well, Larry, when you're looking at uh, these large these large venue businesses uh, with assembly occupancies, it's going to be a multi-layered uh, approach. Uh, obviously, there's been a lot of talk about testing, serology testing, you know, issuance of something they're calling health passports, basically to get a baseline on where people are. And, and with that, then you're looking at what we call syndromic surveillance, you're looking at fevers, coughs, uh, if it's illness-based. And then you go into things like prophylaxis, masks, hand-washing, sanitization, constant stuff. Uh, and, and then you're getting into larger disinfection. And that's where some of the technology gets very interesting. Right now there's, uh, there's some drones that have been used for agriculture that are being cross-decked, if you will, or moved over to do outdoor disinfection of large spaces. For example, they're looking at doing it at the Las Vegas Strip. That's uh, one, of the, one of the things that they're looking at is can they disinfect the Las Vegas Strip, the actual Strip itself. Um, I just uh, got through talking with uh, uh, with Hawaii, uh, with a new station out there. We were talking about doing that same application for uh, parts of Waikiki as well. So some very exciting technology, but it's not one silver bullet. Without a vaccine, it's a lot of different barriers, if you will, to block or mitigate transmission of the virus. What, do you know what the substance is, the drone spray? Is it an alcohol solution, or do you know? what they would there's use. Co- there's a couple. Yeah, initially what they're doing is an alcohol-based substance, uh, really not that different from uh, the, the chemical stuff that you'd find in, say, hand sanitizer. But with that, there's some very interesting things. Uh, there's, For example, there's a, it hasn't been tested for COVID, 
but it's a persistent agent uh, that can be applied that's been used against uh, very successfully against MERS and SARS, which uh, I love the EPA term. They say annihilates the virus. I, I love that phrase, but actually it destroys the virus on contact. And the thing is, it's persistent. Unless it's uh, washed off or rubbed off, it stays there. So if the virus comes in contact with it, uh, it destroys the virus. That that could be a big change. That's not just disinfecting. That's leaving something in place that provides ongoing protection over a period of time. I think we're going to have to look at broader applications of, of those things that basically put barriers, if you will, things that you're never going to eliminate the chance of transmission 100%, uh, of course, until you get a vaccine out there. But you're putting those things in to basically bring it down to a point where, you know, hopefully someday soon, Going to Las Vegas is is no less safe than staying at home under the situation. You think this would be applicable to stadiums and arenas as well? Absolutely, and amusement parks. Um, they're still going to have to do some some form of social distancing. You know, the big the big transmission uh, for the virus is actually comes from the mouth and nose. That's where you get the three to six feet um, uh, rule from. Uh, with masks, that drops that back dramatically. I'm not going to say what that should be reduced to, but uh, with everything else in place, all the serology testing, um, and some of it's pretty quick, turn around like five to 10 minutes serology testing, which is pretty amazing to me. Um, with all that in place, uh, we're going to basically redefine the, the groups that come into these places and really drop the risk. And hopefully we can get to a point where people can go back to uh, sporting events, albeit I don't think they're going to be sitting in quite close proximity or standing in quite close proximity as they are now. Yeah, and I guess the question is, uh, too, are people going to be willing to go places but wear a mask, or will they just stay home rather than wear a mask? Are people going to feel as though they can tolerate the degree of risk to go to a mass venue like that? Let me bring in the conversation from USC Keck School of Medicine, Assistant Professor of Medicine and Infectious Disease Specialist, uh, Dr. Edward Jones Lopez. Dr. Jones Lopez, good to have you with us. Your thoughts about some of the things Hal is, is talking about, and do you think that they might allow for people to go to some of these large-scale venues? Yes, thank you very much for having me. Um, so, yes, I agree on, on most of the things that were con- um, mentioned. Um, I've been thinking about these issues myself, and, and I would think that you know the the framework we're talking about here is that the expectations are that it's going to take another 12 to 18 months for the vaccine to come and so we're talking about trying to manage what's going to happen really in the next 9 to let's say 18 months no? and the important thing here to consider is the not only to get out of this initial wave but to manage what may happen with the second wave that is probably going to happen towards the end of this year if the flu becomes seasonal, which is what a lot of people think will happen. So I think that in terms of looking at the future, uh, the requirements that are going to be needed, I would put them under three brackets. The first one is around testing. There's obviously a lot of issues with widespread testing using the PCR really is the test that has been used up to now to detect the virus itself, to make a diagnosis of patients with symptoms or uh, even without symptoms. We now know 
there's some transmission in asymptomatic patients. Uh, and that obviously needs to be ramped up in a very significant way. The second testing that was mentioned is still not out there, but it's going to be critical really to uh, allowing any uh, future movement of people is to try and understand the antibodies to the virus. Um, and that is a process that could take uh, at least a few more weeks, if not months, because it requires both analytical and clinical validation. And I know there's a a rush for these tests to be uh, uh, to be developed by multiple companies in the world, no? but that's really a critical piece to this because it's really the one that is going to allow us to know what proportion of people are immune, uh, probably from previous exposures. Uh, some of them known, some of them, some of them not known. No? Do you think we could see a point where, and Hal was mentioning about, uh, you know, people having their their temperatures taken before they enter a, a large venue and the like, do you think that we might end up at the point where people would have to show the presence of COVID-19 antibodies or a negative test before they would be allowed to enter the large hotel or the convention or to get on the plane, things like that? Um, yeah, I mean, it's difficult to know exactly what the authorities will ask for. Um, but yes, I, I can see how uh, something like this could happen, uh, something like that could happen. In terms of screening for fever, that's obviously what has been being done initially in airports, as we all know, and then in practically every public facility in the recent past before you come into our hospital in CAC, obviously you have to be screened. And this is true for everyone, both patients and nurses and doctors and so on. And I think that uh, particular strategy has been somewhat successful. The problem is uh, this issue about transmission that can happen even in the absence of fever or symptoms. And obviously, that way of screening in a massive way would not be um, a good way to or an effective way to identify that small proportion of patients who can transmit the virus even before developing symptoms. Yeah. We're talking with Dr. Edward Jones-Lopez of USC Keck School of Medicine. He's assistant professor of medicine, infectious disease specialist, and epidemiologist, and as a physician practicing at Keck, he's treated more than a dozen patients with COVID-19 who are getting critical care at Keck. You're listening to Air Talk on 89.3 KPECC. At what point uh, is it likely we'll see large-scale venues start to open and under what circumstances? We'll take your questions at 866-893-KPECC or the Air Talk page, kpecc.org. Back in one minute. It's Air Talk on 89.3 KPCC. We're talking about the potential down the road for large venues to reopen, whether they're sports arenas or stadiums, theme parks, uh, whether they're large convention gathering spots like the L.A. Convention Center or Las Vegas Strip Hotels. 
How far are we from concerts uh, being available again? We're at 866-893-KPECC. Hal Kempfer, CEO of the management consulting firm Grip, which is based in Long Beach. Hal, with the clients uh, with whom you're consulting, whether we're talking about you know, a large operator of resort hotels or whether it's a theme park, um, are are they grappling with this idea of restricting um, entry to certain people? And um, is that something that ultimately you think they're going to be comfortable with? It, well, you know, Larry, it's interesting is because of the nature of the crisis, it's not a, a really a private sector thing alone. It's a public-private consortium, and I'll give you an example in Las Vegas. You know, when this whole thing started breaking out, um, uh, we said this, uh, not so much tongue-in-cheek, but we said, you know, about 90% of what is in Las Vegas that drives the economy is now going to be a violation of public health code because it's about people getting together uh, in close proximity. That's what Vegas is. And, And so when we look at it, um, what they've done is they've set up a task force, a coronavirus task force, uh, which is a publicly designated thing. But what you see is top resort and uh, uh, public-private leaders, if you will, that sit on the task force to come up with a comprehensive solution. It's not just what we do at the door of the venue. It's all the things that are done before they get in. It's really it's a, it's basically a large public policy thing, building those barriers. For example, um, demanding serology tests uh, in a universal way, that's not just a, that's a that's going to be a public thing. That's going to involve public health to a major degree. So it's a it's a very integrated approach in order to do this. One of the challenges, less so perhaps for theme parks, but certainly for live sporting events and for destination resorts or places like Las Vegas, is that that uh, boomers, the older cohort have been huge financial drivers of many of those places. And if they're not going to feel comfortable going, or they might even face some sort of age-related restrictions because of greater vulnerability, that's going to have a huge impact on um, the revenue-generating capability, Hal. And is that something, I mean, a place like Las Vegas, there are a lot of boomers, and, and they're a lot of the biggest gamblers. Well, uh, Larry, what we've been saying out there is it's not, you know, you can op- reopen Las Vegas, but uh, if they have a, a cluster outbreak, particularly if it, if it impacts those, uh, you know, the, the traditional revenue base, which is the boomers, uh, disproportionately with a, with a uh, higher than average mortality rate, uh, that could be more catastrophic than what's happened so far. Because at that point, they're going to have to decide to shut down. And at that point, you've also destroyed public confidence yeah. or at least damaged it in, in, in feeling that they have the ability to open up safely. So it's, there's a lot of strategic communications uh, that go beyond just what's actually happening. It's how you communicate it, how you shape the perception. People have to feel safe. And, and you're absolutely right. That demographic is critical to Las Vegas. Yeah. Uh, Jim in Westwood, uh, share with us your thoughts of, about this and when uh, some of these events and venues can reopen. Hi, Larry. I can't predict exactly when a venue like the, like Disney Hall or the Music Center might open. But the question also has to do not just with the safety of the audience, but the safety of the performers. 
And if you're talking about the orchestra, like the L.A. Philharmonic, that sit very close together and a number of whom are wind instruments, I can tell you that the orchestra itself is very concerned about when they might feel safe going back on stage. The same would apply to the opera. The projection that really is something that will impact the Philharmonic is whether the Hollywood Bowl season takes place, because that's an enormous economic yeah, that's her cash cow. Um, venue yeah, for the L.A. Philharmonic, and will have to reevaluate itself considerably if they lose that revenue. But the safety of performers is equally as important as the safety of the audience. Boy, is it. And Jim, I'm so glad you raised that issue. And and yeah, opera, you mentioned too, of course, because uh, the powerhouse voices and performers in close proximity uh, of one another. Dr. Edward Jones-Lopez, a quick comment about performers and the risk they would be assuming. I, I cannot agree more. I mean, the the risk here is obviously uh, very wide, and you know, I I did mention before that you know I would consider the three criteria. The second one, I mentioned the testing that needs to be ramped up on both platforms. The second would be precisely what's being discussed right now, which is maybe putting in uh, age criteria, as we know the epidemic is worse in older patients and maybe even uh, consider the health status, even in younger people who are at risk of developing complications from this disease, you know, if they have underlying health issues. And then the third thing is really trying to figure out a way how we're going to change. Once we start reopening the economy, we would go from current mitigation to, again, going back in terms of the epidemic uh, theory, to, to containment of new cases that would move between states or even mm-hmm. national settings. And obviously there needs to be a very well-developed system to identify cases and isolate them and study their contacts and so on. I need to break, but I want to thank you so much, Dr. Edward Jones-Lopez, USC Keck School of Medicine, infectious disease specialist, epidemiologist, and assistant professor of medicine. And thanks as well, Hal Kemp, for how good to have you with us. He's CEO of the management consulting firm GRIP, based in Long Beach, consulting with operators of larger venues about potential for safely reopening. Stay tuned. Very important news conference from Governor Newsom coming up. And that's going to be in just a couple of minutes.